good to celebrate, to sing together. You know, it really was sort of world-changing for me when I first began to realize that singing in worship isn't just for me (laughs) and isn't just about me. You know, we're actually, yes, we're singing to God, us personally, but the Bible actually says we're singing one to another and encouraging one another in these songs. So the incredible thing, the best thing you can do, whether you can actually sing or not, is to sing loud because it's so the neighbor next to you can hear this and know this. Right? Don't, if you're so worried about them hearing you, you're missing the point. We want them to hear us, right? To be encouraged in the truths that we sing together. Find Genesis chapter 44, continuing in our study through the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 44. And let's read God's word before us. The word of God says, Then he, being Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Go, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you in the land of Canaan. How then could we steal gold or silver from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be your Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you were like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have have you a father or a brother? 
And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will, then we will go. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One, one left me, and I said, surely he has been torn in pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol." For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of God. I want you to imagine for a second being one of Jesus' first disciples. You've seen his ministry You've seen his miracles. You've heard his teaching. You even saw him die on the cross. And now he is standing before you, risen and alive. You know, the book of Acts says that Jesus, after his resurrection, walked around for 40 days after he rose again from the dead. That's a long time. The Bible even tells us over 500 people at one time saw him alive after they just publicly saw him be crucified. And he spent time with his disciples between his rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. And one of the things Jesus often did with his disciples during these times was eat, (laughs) right? Jesus ate with his disciples, and they were eating with him. They could see his nail-scarred hands and his feet. They could see all of this. And what do you think, as Jesus was having a meal with his disciples, he would be talking about? Imagine, you've got the risen Son of God before you, and you're sitting there just eating your food, and he is beginning to talk to you. What do you think Jesus was talking about during these times? Well, we actually get to see a little bit of that in the book of Luke. Hold your place in, in, the, in a Genesis and look over at Luke chapter 24. And look what Luke chapter 24 tells us here. I love this. Luke chapter 24, verse uh, 45, we see this. Then Jesus 
opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what is Jesus doing as he's sitting there eating with them? Jesus is doing Bible study. <laughs> the risen son of God starts a small group <laughs> and begins to eat with them and begins to explain the scriptures to them. He opens their mind and he explains to them the scriptures. Notice he wanted his first disciples and that means that he wants us as his present disciples to see that the scriptures were all about him. And he wanted the scriptures to be the lens by which we view the world and to see that the alpha and the omega is what it's all about from the beginning to end. And I want us to know that with all that's going on in the world today, and friends, there were plenty of big things going on in the world in Jesus' day. The most important thing we can know is who Jesus is and that it is all about him. He wants us to understand the scriptures, to have our minds open and to see that he's the point from Genesis to Revelation and that's the point of all of life. I can even imagine Jesus walking them through this, coming to Genesis 24, putting his finger in it and going, now let me explain to you how this is about me. And that's what we're going to do this morning is look a little bit at the gospel according to Judah. What, how, does, how does this chapter point us toward Jesus? But before we see that, I want us to kind of recap what's been happening with Joseph and his family because Joseph has been testing his brothers, right? He's testing them to see if they've changed, if they can be trusted. And across the last three chapters, he's really trying, been trying to get three questions answered. You'll see these in your notes, these three questions. First, he wants to know, have they sold any of the other brothers into slavery? Remember, decades have passed, and he's kind of trying to figure out, okay, did, have they just done this once, or are they repeat offenders? They first arrive with only 10 brothers, and he kind of goes, hey, where, where's Benjamin in the midst of this? What about my father, Jacob? And so he, he sets out this scheme to bring his family back together in Egypt. Second, he wants to know if they have the same motives. He wants to know if they have the same motives for money and for revenge. In order to see if they would bring Benjamin along, he ends up putting Simeon in to prison. And he provides them with food and fortune for the road. And so the brothers could have just skipped town, left their brother in jail, enjoyed the food and the money, and, and just sort of left this guy there. Would they, and, and so he wanted to see if they would leave by the same motive, Simeon in jail, if they were given food and fortune. And finally, he wanted to know, would they do it again if they were put in the exact same situation? And so Genesis 44 is actually Joseph setting up this third test. He's going to recreate a similar situation to where the brothers were back in chapter 37 when they sold Joseph into slavery. And he wants to see, would they do it again? Have they learned anything over these decades that have passed? Remember, Genesis 43 last week, we've been working through this 
through these chapters, left off with the brothers enjoying themselves in the house of Egypt. They were feasting and drinking. And the passage even says the brothers probably got a little intoxicated at this night in Egypt. And so Joseph sends his servants into action. Look what happens in chapter 44, verse 1. Then Joseph commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told them. And so the brothers stay the night. He gets their bag full of stuff, and he makes sure a certain valuable cup gets put in Benjamin's sack. And so they get up the next morning. Joseph lets them get out of the city. And then he sends a servant to go get them and to accuse them of stealing the cup. And that Joseph's, that Joseph's servants put in the bag. And the brothers rightly deny all accusations. They're like, hey, I, we didn't do this. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. But rather than kill the guilty one and enslave all the brothers, Joseph and his servants have another plan. Verse 10, look at this. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. So see it. One of the brothers, if found guilty, is now going to be sent into Egyptian slavery. Do we see how similar these events are between Genesis 37 when Joseph, as the favorite, is betrayed? They now are given the brothers opportunity to sell one another out, to, to really begin to place the blame and just place another brother and get out safely. And it, we should begin to notice that they don't appear to play the blame game or to sell anybody out yet. You can sort of imagine the scene going in slow motion, beginning in verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. You can imagine 11 of them pouring out their stuff, and after each one, they're wiping the sweat, like, okay, it wasn't that one. Okay, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. The favorite, the one they were told to keep safe on the trip, it's in his sack. And they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. It was Benjamin, the favorite son of Jacob, who was caught with the cup. This is the worst possible thing that could happen at this moment. They were on their way home when this happens. Isn't that always how it is, right? And not Benjamin, not the one whom Jacob, their father, said he would die if they didn't return. Notice, Jacob was not the best father. He didn't, really didn't care about if the other 10 returned home, but that one, he wanted him back or his life would end. They return to Joseph's house, and the whole group stands guilty before the king. And a new hero begins to emerge. Judah, 
Judah stands before Joseph and he speaks on behalf of his family. And this is actually one of the longest monologues in the book of Genesis. One of the longest sort of continuous speech by any person in the book of Genesis. And it shows us that what Judah is going to say is so important. The brothers are in a similar situation. The favorite brother is about to be taken into Egyptian slavery. And what are the brothers going to do? Are they going to let him and save their skin? Are they going to defend him? And what is Judah going to say? And it's in this speech, I believe Jesus at at that dinner would have dropped his finger and said, this is where I am. Jesus leaps off the page of this chapter of the book of Genesis and we begin to see the gospel according to Judah. Let's see first, as Judah begins to speak, Judah confessed their guilt. It's the first thing we see. Judah begins by confessing the guilt of the people. Look at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do that. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Notice something here. First, Joseph's really playing up this Egyptian ruler thing, isn't he? I think he's probably having a little bit of fun here because the brothers still haven't figured out that this is their long lost brother they think is long dead. And he speaks of, don't you know I use this cup for divination, but... We know Joseph didn't need divination. He put the cup there, right? He's really trying to play this up and keep them fooled as to who he is. He's continuing to stay undercover, at least for now. And he wants them to basically know, you parents know this. You walk the kid in the room and you don't actually know what the kid did. But you say, I know what you did. And he's he's sort of doing the same thing. He's like, I know what you did. And he, he... And so he's wanting them to openly confess, right? The brothers weren't going to get out of this, right? And and Judah stands up and he confesses that God had found out their guilt. Now, was Judah confessing to taking the cup? They were intoxicated, so he may be simply saying, I don't know, I went to bed about 10 o'clock. I don't know what happened afterward. It's possible It's also possible that that Judah and the brothers knew that Benjamin didn't steal the cup. I could imagine Benjamin was probably going, guys, I I didn't do it. He's probably pleading his innocence. And they thought, well, let's just say we did it to get mercy rather than justice, right? That's, That's a possibility. It's also possible, and I think likely, that when Judah is confessing this guilt, he is confessing how these brothers had mistreated Joseph he, he had mentioned before how he had wronged his brother in the previous chapter, and they can see how events are now repeating themselves, but rather than selling the favorite son, the favorite son's being taken away, and now they're going to probably lose their father as well. And so he, they see all this, and they sort of see that, oh, we are getting what we deserve. And he says, we are guilty, guilty, guilty. And regardless... 
They couldn't plead innocence. The, the cup was found in the sack. So they confessed their guilt, no cover-up, no excuses. And Judah is very much acting like what the priests of the Old Testament would later do. He would be a, a representative or a mediator confessing the sins of the people. And confessing his own personal sins. Remember that when the priests in the Old Testament would enter the temple, they not only had to confess the sins of the people, they had to start with confessing the sins of the priest. And friends, there, this is why earthly mediators can only get you so far. (laughs) There are people who believe that their hope of eternal life is rooted in the fact that they went to some clergyman, some guy with a collar, some guy with a title, and they told them everything they ever did, and the guy said that they're good to go. And let me tell you this, the Bible does invite us to confess our sins to one another. There's healing in confession, but it doesn't need to be with a guy with a collar or a guy who went to seminary. No, 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 no. The Bible invites us to confess our sins one to another because in Jesus, each of us has been made a priest of the Most High God. We can pray on behalf of one another and we can plead and point one another toward the hope of mercy. But it does tell us something that every earthly mediator, even beyond Judah's life, proved to be imperfect. The shout of the Old Testament, as you see the temple being built later and the priests going into the temple, is when can a perfect, sinless mediator come into the presence of God and plead mercy on my behalf? The whole Old Testament is sort of crying out for a better mediator. And when will one come? So Judah comes as a mediator, confessing their guilt. And by confessing their sins, we see second, that Judah pleaded for mercy. He doesn't simply say, we're guilty, we're sorry. He says, have mercy on us. Look at verse 18. This is so bold. Judah walks up to him. Remember, he he believes this is the governor of Egypt. He went up to him and he said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. He pleads and he tries to appease and remove Joseph's anger. And he explains what happens. Really, most of the rest of the passage is a sort of a recap of everything that happened. He said, well, we came to visit you the first time because our father needed food. And you took Simeon and we returned with Benjamin. And we can't return home without Benjamin or our father will die. And look what he says in verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave, to the place of the dead. So Judah is confessing this guilt and pleading for mercy, not just for the life of Benjamin, his brother, but for the life of Jacob, his father. He says, my father's life is bound up in the boy. Whether right or wrong, my father has favorites, and I am going to do what is better for others rather than save my own skin. He knew that his 
father Jacob loved the sons of Rachel more than the sons of Leah or the mothers of his other children. And Judah begins pleading for mercy in order to spare the life of Jacob. See how opposite this is from Judah just decades ago when they sold Joseph into slavery. Remember, it was Judah's idea. He, he took the lead in the situation. And you can actually read this back in Genesis 37, verse 26 and 27. Judah said, actually, let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him. <laughs> let's not kill him. Let's make a buck off of him. His, his mercy then was driven by greed, but his mercy now is driven by love. He's no longer driven by the bottom line. He's driven by a higher love. And we see the love of these brothers and the way that they've grown because they ripped their clothes. I think it's interesting because remember when 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 Jacob saw that Joseph was dead, what did he do? He ripped the robe. And now the brothers in mourning rip their clothes. The heart and compassion. See it. Someone had to lead this family. And Judah pleaded for mercy because Judah knew what it was to receive mercy. He's the one who's responsible because he's the only brother in this family that has been repentant for anything they ever did. Reuben, the oldest, blew it back in chapter 35. You can go read about a very interesting uh, sinful situation he had with his stepmother there. And Reuben, again, as we've been saying, anytime he opens his mouth, he's going to get the wrong answer. And Reuben proved not to be repentant. Levi and Simeon, who were the next oldest, were never repentant when they went and slaughtered a whole tribe of people back in Genesis chapter 35. But Judah blew it too, right? Judah blew it back in chapter 38 with Tamar, but he was repentant and was restored. The three oldest brothers disqualified themselves from leadership from representing this family, from pleading this mercy. But Judah stepped into this role, and this is going to be very important in, in days ahead in the life of this family and for what God had promised for this family. Judah comes forward. He confesses their guilt like a mediator or a priest on behalf of this family. He pleads for mercy He did not want to bring death and sorrow upon his family. This comes from a heart of love. And what Judah does next is the most incredible and dramatic part of the passage. Third, we see that Judah offered himself as a substitute. Judah offers himself as a substitute. Look back again at verse 30. Look at this. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah offers himself instead of Benjamin. 
in his place, whatever may come. He doesn't know that the Egyptians aren't going to take him, make him a servant, and then kill him when they leave. But Judah says, I will take upon myself the punishment due this other brother. And I hope you're beginning to see how Jesus at that table pointed there and said, I'm the better Judah. We have a mediator better than Judah. We have a sinless mediator who can plead for mercy and doesn't have to confess his own sins because he never sins. And we have a mediator who is pleading before the Father out of a heart of love. And this mediator, just like Judah, substituted himself in our place. And this mediator is Jesus Christ. I want you to read what Paul, the Apostle Paul, would later say in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at this. For there is one God and one mediator, one go-between, one high priest between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus walks into the courtroom of heaven where we are found guilty, and he says, I will take their place, I will die their death on the cross, and I will take upon myself the punishment that they deserve, even though I did none of it. The innocent Savior died the death of guilty sinners so that guilty sinners could go free, so that they could have eternal life, so that they could enjoy restoration and a relationship with their Father in heaven. And so they could be transformed like Judah, who's been transformed from selfish to a servant. And all of this comes from the heart of divine, perfect love. Look what Jesus himself taught in John chapter 15, verse 13. Look at this. No, there's greater love has no one than this, that someone should lay down their life for their friends. And friends, Jesus goes a step further because he laid down his life for his enemies. He laid down his life for people that weren't even seeking after him or looking for him. He laid down his life for his enemies. I want us to see the incredible news of John 3.16 in this light. We're so, we, we just read over this verse so much. We see it put on the, you know, the football players put it on, which is great. We're, we're, this verse is around us all the time, but we never really stop and just soak in this reality. Look at this, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See the love of God. Jesus died in our place, and he rose from the dead. And the Bible says that now as he's ascended into heaven, for those who have trusted in him, he is praying and interceding on your behalf. And let me tell you, Jesus is the, is the best prayer partner you can have, right? God in flesh is an incredible prayer partner. And you can actually read a little bit. Have you ever wondered what Jesus prays for you? Let me have you mark this down. You can read this in your own time. John chapter 17 tells us what Jesus is praying for us. You can read a little bit in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and also throughout the book of Revelation you see these heavenly scenes of Jesus as priest, king, and and ruler over the world. And the boldness of Judah is meant to point us toward 
the goodness of Jesus. Imagine again standing before him and the risen son of God has finished reading this passage and he closes the book and he says, that's me. (laughs) That's all about me. And today you may feel hopeless and lost and unlovable and as if nothing could ever change your course in life. But Jesus has declared through his death and resurrection that God loves you. And that you can have your sins forgiven and your guilt can be erased because another has taken it upon himself. You can walk free like Benjamin because another took your place before the punishment of God. This is why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace, which must be responded to. The Bible says to receive this, you turn, repent, you turn from your sin and yourself, and you trust in Jesus Christ. Friends, grace that is not responded to is grace that is not truly cherished or treasured. And friends, there's so many of us that go, well, I want to wait and live my life, and I'll do that later. (laughs) But let me tell you, that means you don't get where true life is found. (laughs) Life isn't found in the later. Jesus says that eternal life is knowing your Savior now and walking in that. And so let me close with this. There's a lot going on in our world today. And I know there's a lot going on in your personal lives, right? Everybody's got stuff and stuff that people don't even know about, right? And some of us are tempted to believe that this gospel message isn't enough. Some are tempted to say things like, Pastor, no matter what passage you preach on, you always are talking about Jesus and his death and resurrection. Don't you have another message for me? No, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to ruin that for you, but no. The, the Bible has all sorts of good principles and ethics that should be taught and lived out, right? But if the resurrected and glorified Jesus thought this was important enough to include this at his dinners with his disciples, how much more should we hear it? <laughs> this is what he was talking about with them. He knew that the most important thing for us to do is to rest in what, in what he has done for us. And if that message gets stale or old, that means we need a heart realignment, isn't it? That means we need exactly what the hymn says, that we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. And let me tell you this, we need the gospel, not simply every week in a sermon. We need it every moment of every day. And we need to know the incredible love that God has displayed for us and the incredible way that he's displayed it. And let me tell you something incredible here as as a side note. Many people always talk about and have a desire for God's people to grow, for the church to grow, and that's great. And you know how a church grows? when the gospel is preached to other people. We can do all kinds of good in the world, and we should, right? You can do all sorts of things, but, if the, but the gospel needs to be shared to other people. If we want to give ourselves towards something, give ourselves toward that. We don't just need it for our life. We need it for the world around us. 
And so at dinner with Jesus, he would point at Genesis 44 and go, that's me. (laughs) I'm the greater and better Judah. And there are many here today that, that need to be reminded of that message, but there's also many here today that have never taken the first step and place their faith in what Jesus has done in your place. Maybe you've never understood the whole church thing. Maybe you're like, well, as long as I come and I sit in a chair, my sins are forgiven. Or, well, I, I, I've talked to, you know, Pastor Matt, or I shared with the priest, and I, I, I've confessed my sins a little. I'm all good. Or maybe you're looking back at your own works and thinking, well, I've been, I've been baptized and I've done all these things. And let me tell you, all of that apart from Jesus is nothing. And the Bible would have you to take the step of faith, a personal step, not rooted in your granddaddy or your daddy or your mama or your grandmama, but a personal step to go, I am trusting in Jesus as the one who has offered himself in my place and died my death that I deserve for my sins. And today, if you need to do that, I'm going to be... Uh, down front here and would love to talk to you if you don't even want to talk to me and you want to go straight to the straight to the father himself you can do that you can pray where you are you can come forward but friends i'm so serious about us getting the gospel rights and hearing again that what we need isn't 10 principles for a better life but it is the message that god loves sinners and has died in their place and he's risen again And he is reigning and ruling and interceding today on behalf of his people. So these next moments are going to be moments to respond, whether it's just respond in worship, whether it's to respond with the decision you need to make, whatever it is, this time going forward is time to do business with God. Not to wait, not to put it off, not to be distracted, but to focus on doing business with God. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we need you. We need your grace and your mercy. We need the message of eternal life through your son, Jesus. We're so thankful that you chose to love us and to give your son as a ransom for us to die and to substitute yourself in our place and to rise again from the dead so that we can have a hope of resurrection one day, of eternal life with you beginning now and into all of eternity. So Lord, I pray right now that this message would, yes, encourage your people here who know you and love you and be encouraged that regardless of what happens in the world, that message is true that you have given yourself on behalf of sinners and have risen again from the dead. But for those who don't know you, who haven't placed their faith, their trust, who haven't made that their own, I pray right now that you would prick their heart by your spirit, that you draw them to yourself, and that whatever business they need to do now, confessing their sins, pleading for mercy, placing their faith in you, as their substitute, that they would do that in these moments. I ask, Lord, that your people would respond in glad worship and that we would make much of you 
in these next moments together. Whatever we need to do, may we do it now and do it for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to his gospel together and his goodness toward us. Let me just close with two things before we close with the benediction. First, if you need to ever talk to somebody, get connected, if you're not able to grab me or somebody else, there's always a get connected card back at the back. Lots of options. Select that, drop that in the plate when you walk out and and somebody will get connected with you. Particularly if you want to maybe know more about our church, maybe you've been looking for a church home, this is the way to get connected. You can also fill it out uh, online if you need to. So I'd encourage if you're not connected to a local church body, that this is the place to do so. And we'd love to invite you just to get connected to learn more about our church. Just a thank you to those of you who give. Uh, right now, we've only got a basket back there. So just keeping that in mind. But thank you to those of you who give and support the incredible work happening at this ministry. And it really is. The Lord really is doing incredible things and touching folks well beyond these walls on Sunday. And let me close with a benediction. This from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.